Welcome back to the Big Esports Podcast. This is episode 19. In the last episode, we talked to Jerry Sakas, the CEO of Playside Studios, a 50-person AAA mobile and PC development studio based out of Melbourne, Australia, in partnership with us here at Big Esports. In this episode, we're chatting to Mitch Uber, Leslie, He's a commentator at the Overwatch World League over in the US. He has a history working with ESL and he actually hails from my home country of Australia. He comes from a little hot state called South Australia down there. We have a lot of a chat about pathways into the industry for a commentator. That's becoming something that's quite more lucrative these days and quite popular with many different people. In the past, there really hasn't been many opportunities available, and we do cover some of those points. We hone in quite a lot on making money as a commentator and a freelance within the industry. We talk about how much you should charge, understanding what the rates are, a little bit of strategies and tips on how to build your network and start talking to these businesses and actually securing these contracts for yourself and also a bit of a discussion about what it's like to be a freelance commentator, a contracted commentator and a full-time commentator. So hopefully you enjoy this podcast supported by PLE Computers. Make sure you give a listen and interact with us on social media at Big Esports GG on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Thanks and enjoy. One of the best things you can do for esports in Australia or abroad is support those companies that support you. What we do here in Australia at Big Esports is we've partnered with PLE Computers. They're a PC retailer that sell all of the best gaming gear. They also make a whole bunch of custom PCs, whether it's a full water-cooled massive rig to play Crisis at full graphics, or whether it's something nice and simple to take to LAN parties, play CSGO, Rocket League, Fortnite, or otherwise. They've got these different solutions for you. What we're doing with PLE is instead of just a general advertising partnership, we're trying to educate audiences and we're trying to grow the local scene. So PLE are working with us on our mentor courses where we're providing discounts on both shipping and parts to the people that join in. We've partnered with them on our high school boot camp where we're educating high school students on mental health, physical health and wellness, along with technology integration, understanding how they can take apart and build their own computers and save money on pre-builds. We're also working with them on this podcast, which we're hoping is educating all of you not only on just talking to cool people and understanding how they think and feel but what their struggles are how their businesses work and how the back end works so if you're looking to support a company that supports the scene make sure you check out ple at ple.com.au and grab yourself a bargain welcome to the big esports podcast episode 19 with me today in the studio i have a very own australian homegrown talent mitch the uber over in la these days mate how are you Hey, great to be here, Chris. Thanks for having me. Um, I'm doing well, man. Just sort of on the tail end of my holiday period, just before we jump back in uh, to another season of the Overwatch League. So trying to soak up some peace and quiet. And I guess we've got to start off with a bit about your move. Um, you've, you've kind of moved from one hot state in South Australia off to another hot state in California. Do you find the climates fairly similar? Uh, yeah, uh, generally pretty similar. It's probably a little bit drier out here. It is a desert. Uh, you know, sort of in LA, which I often forget because there's so many like artificially planted uh, palm trees out here. But I mean, bear in mind, in between that, I guess I lived in Germany, which was uh, you know much colder in between. So I've just been thrown between different biomes wherever I go, basically. Yeah. So you know, pending us getting into this conversation, having a bit of a chat about the bit the nitty gritty and behind the scenes of what you're doing these days and the Overwatch World League. Can you give us a quick rundown on kind of how you started off in, in the humble beginnings of Netgame Radio and COD four and a little bit about what your steps were through Germany and to where you are today in LA? Yeah, sure. I'm gonna try and keep this one short because it tends to run on. But I mean I 
was playing COD 4 uh, a fair bit, sort of, you know, 2009, 2010, around that period of time. Um, I would say at my greatest achievement, I was a poor player on a very good team. I think I was, you know, I sort of got into a lot of these teams because I was a decent caller and had a decent mind for the game, but it didn't really translate uh, mechanically. But I'd only been playing games like properly since 16. So I started a little bit later than, than most. Um, but I went to university sort of, uh, you know, 20, uh, I guess, yeah, towards sort of 2009, 2010. And I didn't have the time to commit to sort of playing as much Call of Duty 4 as I had been. I was, you know, I was clocking, you know, you could see on X-Fire, right? I was clocking, you know, like 40 hours a week of Call of Duty 4, and that was including practices and scrims and league matches, and I just couldn't, I couldn't maintain it, you know, when I, when I was going to university. I still wanted to be involved in, in, the, in the community, though. I still wanted to be about the game. So uh, a friend of mine uh, who also lived in Adelaide at the time, uh, his name was Josh, or Rads was his uh, in-game name. I'm sure you're familiar with him from the old days. Yes. Um, he was a caster at the time. He was casting with uh, an organization called Net Game Radio, which you're also a part of. So he extended to me the chance to, to get involved with them. And uh, my first cast was quite shaky, but obviously we were doing you know, radio broadcasts back uh, at that time. Uh, and that's when I got on board with NetGame Radio after that first cast. So, you know, with yourself, I know you were doing a lot of Battlefield, especially uh, at that time. Um, but, you know, I, I stayed in that Decod division and sort of over a couple of years, I, there has to have been a, at least 200, you know, broadcasts that we sort of did for um, sort of Australian Call of Duty leagues, whether it was like Invite or Main, even Open Division games, where I started casting. It allowed me to stay sort of in touch with the community and still be a part of the game that I loved whilst committing some more time to university. But um, as time went on, you know, COD 4 kind of died off, you know, and, uh, you know, new games came along and I I decided to start playing a little bit of League of Legends and I thought that casting that would be kind of good, but it was a different landscape to get in as caster because that was obviously one of the first developer-backed uh, sort of games in Australia that was sort of spinning up their scene. So, you know, Riot was in Australia sort of looking for casters uh, after a little while and, you know, I didn't quite get off on, on the best foot with them and I probably needed a few years of just knowing how to not piss people off. Uh, so, you know, I still cast the League of Legends sort of externally and then uh, moved into casting Counter-Strike. So I did a bit, bit of that. Um, it wasn't really going sort of anywhere fast, I'd say, that period of time. I was sort of, you know, is doing it as more of a side hobby. But my friend, uh, Reagan Corioso, who at the time ran... Um, Mind Freak Esports Australian org and also was part of ESL Australia's first sort of foray into uh, esports, um, or at least ESL's first foray into Australia. Told me about this game called World of Tanks um, that was sort of they were looking for casters to sort of cover it. Now, it wasn't a big game in Australia; it's huge in the Balkans and in Eastern Europe. And I mean, I don't know if uh, the game really sort of reached out to me and grabbed me, but um, the opportunity was there, and you know that was something that I was sort of worth committing to after uni i'd graduated uni but i didn't directly go into an engineering job as was was what my degree was it was um a little bit hard to find a job and maybe i just part of me maybe just didn't want to you know commit and sort of have to give up a lot of the esports stuff i was doing this could have been a bad idea i didn't even know if this was the right choice and it just seemed like i was prolonging the inevitable desk job that i was going to end up taking but from my work in World of Tanks, I did a couple of Supernovas and PAX events where I sort of hosted. It was more of a trade show. So it wasn't even an esports event. It was sort of like, hey, come play this game. We'll do some mini games on stage and I'll throw some free stuff. That was probably one of the last times I saw you because we were sharing a bottle of Dom Perignon at the end of one of those events. <laughs> yes. Yeah. I Living the esports stream before I even knew it. But um, 
after that, uh, a bloke from ESL in in Europe sort of scouted me and brought me over. Uh, so that was probably my the big break. I think he sort of said, "Hey, do you want to live in Germany and cast? You know, World of Tanks. We need casters. There aren't many people that cast this game because it was fairly obscure, which is fair enough." And uh, I had the option just to sort of pick up with two weeks' notice and go to Germany. So that's kind of where it began. Went to ESL and sort of started my actual career as a professional commentator there. So how do you find that kind of seeking the first opportunity? Do you, do you think that it's a kind of a logical progression? And I mean, obviously, the, the whole scene is established much more these days than, you know, it ever used to be in the past with plenty of talent agencies and plenty of in-house talent. But how did... You know, how did you go about it? What was your thinking process for, you know, let's delay uni? Did you, did you set some specific goals or did you have a mentor or people you talked to or did it just kind of fall into your lap? Um, I don't think there was any logic um, associated with really finding that big break at that time in Australia because there was no defined pathway. You know, there was no sort of apprenticeship process you'd take and then you'd sort of have an opportunity at a job. Um, mm. I obviously had finished my degree, but I went and worked in a community pharmacy um, uh, just because I needed to be able to, you know, take a week off here and there. And sort of it wasn't it wasn't a part. It was a full time job, but I was lucky they were so flexible with me. Um, and it was probably getting to the point, honestly, that I'd been too long out of uni and I hadn't been into an engineering job that I might have just struggled to get in at all. I might have to go back and do a, uh, you know, a refresher or something like that. But I... For some, for some reason, I, I thought like it would go somewhere uh, and I didn't think it would be outside Australia. I thought that maybe, hey, I'll just work at this pharmacy and then maybe a couple, you know, weekends a month or a weekend a month, I'd do an event and make some money on the side and maybe there was something there. But there was nothing set in stone. Like no one could say to me that there was, I was definitely working towards this opportunity and this opportunity from ESL in Germany falling into my lap was purely because they had sent... Uh, one of their staff to Melbourne to help us run a World of Tanks event at Supernova uh, just so, for some oversight and some just consulting. And I got on with him really well. And, you know, he saw that I, I guess he saw that I had a little bit of a knack for it. And there was just a need for World of Tanks casters over in Germany. So it was, it was, I would say, purely by chance. It was right place, right time. And I think for many people will give you the same answer at that time before things were established. You know, there wasn't a pathway or like a, a heuristic you could follow that would guarantee you a higher chance of getting it done I, i'm sure there was a goal there but the goal was forming as i went along you know what i mean like there'd be a mm. dream then i'd get the dream there'd be a new dream and that would sort of change and you know my ideas would start to coalesce a little bit more into something solid that i really wanted to do with it but at the time i was just trying to work hard and uh you know make people happy yeah and i always find it really interesting um and, and you know, definitely following what you went with too is people focusing on building their legacy within a smaller game where there's less competition before going off to the larger titles. So, you know, for example, you cut your teeth a lot in the international thing on World of Tanks, which like you said is massive in some regions, but, you know, being realistic globally, you probably wouldn't call it a tier one esport. And it's kind of similar with the way that you might get a great leg up if you started off working in Smite really early, you know, when Dignitas were pushing in really hard and they had the global leagues or Heroes in New Earth before with Zayori that was able to, you know, successfully transfer from that uh, waning scene into Dota and things like that. And, you know, I've, I find it similar with the esports scene as well right now with uh, using teams. And this might be a bit of a far-fetched analogy, but uh, stick with me and see if you agree. But, you know, all of the teams right now, they're kind of coming to me and, and going off to other people and saying, hey, I want to get sponsored by Razer, the biggest 
you know, peripheral company in the world or by Corsair or I want Intel or someone like that. When there's kind of the low-hanging fruit and ways that you can build up your brand, you can start making some revenue or for you, just really start getting some on-camera time and, and getting some portfolio put together by chasing those more B or Tier 2, Tier 3 style games. Would you agree with that? Uh, absolutely. I think that the opportunities for those are definitely there, right? Like, so someone who's maybe it's a new game, uh, and maybe there's not an established scene for broadcasters, but they want to kick off esports relatively early on. Um, mm. th- there's obviously less of a, like a solid idea of what they want to see, or maybe there aren't already established names there. So it is that I agree with that analogy. Like, it, it is much the same. Um, and when I was casting Water Tanks, I didn't really have any perception of what that would lead to. When I was casting Water Tanks, I wanted to be a League of Legends caster or a Counter Strike caster. You know, I definitely had designs on those, you know, tier one games or the games with like that huge developer backing or large marketing budget behind them. But um, mm. so I guess that was kind of there. Um, but but ultimately, I knew that I had to develop a portfolio. But more importantly, a network. You know, like. TOs or tournament organizers or, you know, developers that I'd worked with before that were, were happy with the work, like those connections, you know, the amount of, and I'll be honest with this and this, you know, I don't want to burst anyone's sort of bubble or perception of how the professional scene works, but sometimes just, you know, having a few drinks with these guys and, you know, like talking after an event and just, you know, talking about yourself and what your goals are and, you know, getting to know the people on the developer of the tournament operator side is, is very important. I'll put it out there right now. The reason I went to work with Germany is because me and this this bloke from the, uh, from Germany just clicked. You know, like within five minutes, we were talking like old mates. The fact that we had a good personal relationship was definitely probably more predominant over me just being a great caster. That was what allowed me to go over there. It has to be a combination of both. And it has to start um, when you don't have a portfolio. It has to start, you know, lower down the, the rung on a lower tier game or different you know kinds of content or just putting yourself out there. Mm. And would you say you follow the same advice for someone coming from a smaller region? Obviously, you've got that experience coming from Australia and you, you kind of had that at INS, but, uh, you know, looking for someone today who's trying to come from a small Eastern European country or come from Australia, or New Zealand, wherever else, do you think that, you know, trying to build those relationships is the same way to go ahead with it? Absolutely. Providing that, like, the predominant language of your broadcast is in, it's a little bit different when you're, like, if you're, like, a French or Spanish-speaking caster or something else like that that sort of muddles the mixture a little bit more. But absolutely, my goal in Australia was to try and, you know, grow and become the big fish in that pond and, you know, have a very good rep in Australia, um, you know, for, for what I did. And, and, and I knew that, it, oh, I hoped at least that eventually that would sort of provide opportunities outside of that. Now, it's very possible that I didn't meet this bloke from Germany and I just kept grinding. And I still believe that I would have been able to work my way up sort of locally and that would have manifested in sort of more international opportunities. It always does. And I took the casters all the time, uh, you know, that have worked on a tons of different games that have come from these smaller regions, but have just worked really hard, not only to grow themselves in that region, but also to support it because, you know, you only grow as much as that region does. So much mm. of casting at the grassroots level is about wanting to uh, give these players sort of the justice that they deserve, of course, or give them give them that recognition and give the scene, the people behind it, the production people, the community, that kind of exposure and put you all, whatever, however much weight you have behind them as well. Mm. And you, what's, you know, taking it right back to the beginning, someone's, you know, in high school and they might say, okay, you know, maybe being a professional gamer isn't for me, the traditional business life, I don't want to own a startup or something like that. What's the absolute first steps that someone should take towards a professional commentary career? First thing is to set up uh, mediums for propagating your content. So it's got to be YouTube, you know, Twitter, Instagram, perhaps, I guess, if, if you want to sort of go in more of an influencer direction. 
But you just need to put your content out there. It's as simple as that. Like the amount of people that I've spoken to have said, how do I get into esports? I've been trying so hard. And I ask them, okay, well, can I see some of your work? And they go, oh, I don't have any recorded. And I'm like, well, okay. Nowadays, there is more resources than ever before to practice or to get some actual practical experience. Like back when we were radio casting Call of Duty 4, you couldn't find game footage like on the internet. You couldn't just like, couldn't just go to mm. YouTube and then cast over, especially if you're in Australia and you had to download a YouTube video. Like, you know how long that would take? It's, it just doesn't work. So you had to be in those games and actually getting your practice there. So you kind of already had to be, uh, you know, had to have that trust as someone who could cast and put their voice out there to even actually have the chance to practice. So now it's like you go to YouTube, you, you get a vod of a game, you, you download it, you cast over it, you put it on your YouTube. You know, there's, there's tons of ways to do it. You know, if you're using Twitter, try and interact with people that are also in, in that scene. So I found a great way is that, you know, you can follow a bunch of people that you're interested in esports and see what they're up to and try and learn from them and, you know, ask them questions on Twitter and reach out to them. People reach out to me all the time and say, what can I do? And I like that. I never ignore those messages. I, I never go like, oh, why is he talking to me? And it's always, I often give them the same answer, but the fact that they take the effort to reach out, uh, providing they do it obviously in the right way or the right tone, you know, mm. it's never something that a caster is going to look down on and say, oh, like you're wasting your time because that's how we got there as well. Because we all came up in a scene that was much harder to find your first big break, in my opinion, than it is now. Despite the fact that there is a higher saturation of esports talent in the industry, the path is way more defined. Yeah, exactly. And look, that same advice goes from pretty much anyone you talk to in, in any kind of uh, section within the esports industry, right? So often I see things go pretty viral on Twitter all the time of people asking large journalists who are quite, you know, quite popular within the space. Hey, how do I start becoming a journalist? Exactly the same what you said is just start writing something, start commentating, start writing. How do you get a job in esports? Best way that I always tell people is reach out to an esports team and say, Hey, can I help you with your social media? Can I take a few photos for you at the event? And you can start building that portfolio because exactly like you said, you know, if you want to get employed as an, as an on-screen, on-air talent, you need some sort of portfolio, right? Like it's the same way that if, you know, you're, wanting to get hired into a into a nice, you know, comfy engineer job. If you've never held a job in your life, if you haven't worked at Red Rooster or Hungry Jacks or KFC, uh, taking, you know, some Australian options there, it's very hard for them to understand what you're actually like to work with and who you uh, are. Absolutely. I mean, you know, a lot of people may not know this, but Mind Freak Esports and Legacy Esports, two fairly prominent Australian esports organisations, I founded both of them. I was the first manager of Legacy Esports and sort of ran the team. I, I got on board with Mind Freak sort of early on in their founding. The first, that Water Tanks event that I did, that I got noticed from, I built the stage with you. You and I yeah. were putting those blocks together because I had no help. You were just walking around. I don't know what you were doing, but you helped me put that stage together. I wrote the runner show. You know what I mean? So I was supposed to be casting that event, but I was also working with ESL Australia to, to put that event together. It doesn't even have to be in that same field you want to do. I, I didn't want to be a World of Tanks caster forever, but I used that as an avenue through, and that I used that to create those networks and connections. You've got, you have to. The thing about making it in esports is that sometimes your big break can be so far down the track that you won't last unless you really love what you're doing, even if you're not getting paid for it. I think that's, you know, something that is could, could get lost. I think as time goes on, because it's just not that grassroots anymore, like it used to be. You know what I mean? But you really have to be able to sustain yourself off your passion for what you do before you mm. receive adulation or congratulations or, you know, feedback even or, or money as it is. So, you know, you've got to, you got to find something else to get you through. Yeah, definitely. I got to pause a bit to, 
talk about that story i think that you just talked about one of the one of the first times we actually met in person because like you mentioned at the start we used to commentate for the same for the same company net game radio you know as volunteers uh, online radio station before you could stream on twitch especially in australia you can't stream on twitch most of the time anyway because their internet's fairly subpar but yeah basically i was sponsoring that i was working at thermal tech at the time and i think i was just sponsoring a couple of pcs i rock up in my car to to bring them in the old trusty subaru station wagon and um yeah walk in with the first box and there's no stage and i think am i at the right place and uh yeah you come up and shake my hand and you go chris mate we need your help the stage is not built and if the stage doesn't get built the show doesn't go on so i went all right roll up your sleeves and off you go pushing i still remember to this day pushing those blocks together to make that stage yeah then we carpeted them and vacuumed the carpet i mean like this is the stuff that i never would have thought i had done i'm glad i did it now because i know but i mean it was quite a chance meeting because i it was just me that was there and i wouldn't have been able to do it that's what mm. i loved about the australian esports community is that Everyone was, you know, rolling up their sleeves to 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 help legitimize our scene. And, you know, the fact that this tournament was happening at, at the Supernova was a big deal. You know, esports wasn't normally at these events. You know, maybe for a PAX it was more common. But, you know, mm. I have fond memories of everyone sort of chipping in uh, and doing their bit to sort of elevate the rest of us. And, you know, something I definitely miss now and um, now that I sort of moved down the track. But that's how you build a scene. Yeah, look, ultimately what I feel about this too is that it's such an advantage that anyone who's worked in the past or or present and maybe future, depending on the size and scale of esports, has over traditional business people. Because you know, I'm lucky enough to be in the position at the moment where I'm employing staff and I'm trying to help lead and, and grow an industry. But me putting my employer hat on, looking at a staff member who has not only, say, like you, stood on stage and been an MC and host, but also sat behind the microphone. You've actually had to build the streaming PCs. You've literally built the stage. You've done the sponsorship decks. You've put together the esports teams. You have then such an uh, an overarching understanding and respect for the whole industry that, you know, engaging you as a consultant or engaging you as a as a talent you know what's going on the whole time you're not going to be that um i guess hollywood cliche of the of the princess or prince person who's just looking to be pampered and looked after all the time because you understand what the players are going through you've been in that aspect before playing in tournaments you understand what the sponsors are looking for so you know how to better you know preach to them and and show off their products and meet those kpis for the company that you're working for and you've even literally built the stage so you understand that you know maybe you shouldn't walk there or maybe you understand perfectly what the limitations so you can move across the stage properly would you agree with that absolutely being able to communicate on on different levels in any industry but esports especially is really there's players there's production staff there's fans there's stakeholders there's your you know your co-caster and communicating on these different levels requires a modulation of your approach you know what i mean and, and having a knowledge of having mm. been there is the difference between you know being you know a, a a very solid asset as a consultant or someone's working on an event and a guy who just posts on LinkedIn that he's an esports consultant when when all he did was play Mario Kart. Yeah, the the good old. Love <laughs> I to see it. There's, there's, kind of, uh, there's kind of three clubs in esports, I think. It's the I'm an esports consultant club. It's the I hate esports consultant clubs. And it's the I don't know about esports club. I think that's uh, or I don't care about esports Absolutely. consultant club. 
Yeah, so you've mentioned, obviously, started off with a bit of Call of Duty, maybe a little bit of Counter-Strike League of Legends, into pretty hardcore World of Tanks. These days, you're doing Overwatch. So as a, as a talent, you know, a, a lot of the time, your career can live and die with a game, and you live and breathe that game, too, at the same time. So what goes through your head when you're picking what your mainstay game should be? Sometimes you're not picking them. Sometimes it can just be, you know, an opportunity uh, that comes along and you realize that it, it might. I was like a multi-game caster, yeah, for a long time. I wouldn't consider myself so much one now. But, you know, after what of Tanks died down and I was still working at ESL, I still had to do something. I had to pay the bills. So I moved into, um, you know, League of Legends, ESL. We're doing Intel Extreme Masters, which at the time still featured League of Legends tournaments. So, I, you mm. know, I jumped into that. I did a bunch of, like, weekly cups, very small local German yeah. weekly cups to sort of cut my teeth on that and you know eventually i was there casting in in katowice at an intel extreme masters world championship with crepo and deficio on either side of me you know so that was a, a great chance to work in that direction now i knew that if i wanted to be cast league of legends i'd have to throw my lot in and and i'd have to apply for a job at riot now i had networks already because i'd worked on the product so that probably wouldn't have been that hard not that i know for sure as i never worked for them but um, I also sort of started casting some Counter-Strike and worked on ESL sort of white level products, um, the ESL Pro League as well. Um, and, you know, that was like a, a you know, two days a week in the studio. It was a league. It was really great to sort of build in and sort of cut your teeth and sort of um, become very familiar with that particular game. And one thing that I realized is that I really wanted to excel uh, at whatever game I touched, but I realized I couldn't excel at all of them. Because like you just said, you need to, when, you're, when you're casting one game, you live and breathe that game. And if you're spread across multiple games, you'll miss goings-on in the community. You may not interpret the metagame correctly. Your technique might not be sort of suitable for it. In League of Legends, I was too excitable. You know, I would get a little bit, uh, get a little bit hyped too early in the game when not much was really happening. I didn't really respect the gradual build-up of that game. In mm. Counter-Strike, I found it very hard to come down in between rounds from big moments. I'd sort of get carried on that high, that adrenaline of just seeing some you know, incredible play. So the round-by-round -round structure was a little bit hard for me to adjust in. And I was not a top caster in either of those games. I would say I was a Tier 2 caster uh, on the global scale. Uh, so when Overwatch sort of was was teased and came out, I, I really... I, I have a background on Unreal Tournament before I started playing COD 4. That was like my, you know casual games as a kid and i loved the concept of an arena shooter but that had this mobile element it actually combined these two games that i wasn't great at you know casting league of legends and counter-strike and essentially merged them into one so you know it was kind of just opportunistic the game comes along i say if i can find a way to sort of dedicate myself to this game i think that i can really uh succeed as a commentator i can really uh you know make progress and get somewhere so as it happens it, it came around uh there, there was Overwatch hype, uh, you know, about six months before the game was released. Myself and my colleague at the time, Jason Kaplan, made a YouTube channel just to create content for it. A lot of people were creating sort of preemptive content about Overwatch, but we're just talking about the game and, you know, what they expected from it. But myself and Jason identified that no one really was thinking about it in an esports perspective. And we, had, we definitely felt that being Blizzard, they would eventually want this game to become an esports. So we created our, our content, our channel around like, what were our expectations about how things would work in esports? We talked about potential game modes, rule sets, metagame, all this kind of stuff. And some people were like, oh, look, you know, calm down. Like, it's, the game's not even out yet. You're already talking about being an esport. But that was just kind of what we did, right? It was just, we always mm. thought about esports and, you know, the potential of games to be esports. So doing that, we got noticed by Blizzard enough that we got, um, you know, a closed beta access to the game. And we cast our first Overwatch tournament in the first week of the closed beta. 
uh, amongst just you know players um, that would that managed to get in. So we were there very early on. Uh, but I decided after casting that that it was very hard, it was super hard to cast, especially back then. But that the mix of those two genres really helped me a lot. But finding the game that you really want to stick to requires a lot of introspection. You have to ask yourself, do I really am I really passionate about this game? Is it something that I would play in my spare time without prompting? And does it suit my style as a commentator? So keeping in mind uh, kind of the topic we're going on at the moment about honing your craft and developing your skills, what's day-to-day life for you like as an on-screen talent and, and how does that differ or, or is it quite similar to what an esports professional would be going through as in an athlete? It's seasonal currently because the Overwatch League is on or it's off. So during the season uh, or during the league, you know, I'm sort of working only four days a week. It's not too bad, but um bearing in mind that a lot of my downtime is still watching or playing the game you know catching up on stuff i haven't seen from other regions ordinarily on an average day you know i'll get up and you know i can sleep in a little bit i get up at sort of 9 30 10 a.m uh, and i'll be down at the arena by 12 30. um i would have maybe a couple of hours then to sit down and review the games for the day make sure i, I know what game i'm casting specifically and do some last minute prep on it but you know hopefully i've prepped enough uh you know on the teams prior to that and when you're doing a league structure you generally your prep gets lighter as you go along because you're very familiar with handling the teams and the players and you know you can identify and recall trends easier because you're immersed in this right so it's it's much it's sort of easy recall information it's not backed up in the depths of your memory um you know but i'll so i'll be there sort of uh, maybe till 2 p.m so an hour and a half just to sit down and get some lunch i'll talk with my co-casters we'll have a meeting before the show where I will sit with um, the observers and producer and we'll just sort of talk about things that we're looking out for the day, uh, establish a couple of narratives that we would like to sort of, you know, present and, you know, not force, but just sort of develop as, as, as the day goes on. Hey, look, this matchup today, both teams have fantastic DPS players. Their statistics are very good. Um, this will be a highlight matchup or, you know, one team has a, a great tank player or, you know, this team has never beaten this team, but they're looking like they might finally break that streak. By, you know, and that's, you know, an hour and a half. So by 4 p.m., we're pretty much ready to go. I'm in makeup about 40 minutes beforehand. I get slapped on me and then we're straight in to cast. And I'll be out there by maybe 10 p.m. So, my, you know, my day goes kind of late. So get home, try and wind down, which for me is hard because I'm sort of very um, energetic with my job. It's a lot of adrenaline involved. And then we rinse and repeat for the next day. Yeah, fantastic. So... What, what else goes into your life as a commentator? You mentioned before about, you know, if you're looking to start off on your journey, you need to set up your social media and such. So how, how important is that work outside of you actually sitting on a camera, talking social media, brand deals, alternative, alternative gigs if you're not locked into, you know, non-exclusive contract, streaming, et cetera? Um, much more important than I first thought. Uh, I was a very sort of one track minded about just the casting aspect of my job until maybe a couple of years ago where I realized there was much more to it. Um, I'll be honest with you, your social media following can often dictate your salary. Uh, even if you're very good at what you do, um, if, you ha- don't, if you aren't bringing a lot of viewers over to the game, that can affect your salary. Let's just say, you know, Caster X is technically brilliant, very, very good, but only has 10K followers. Caster Y, not as technically strong, um, but has been around longer and has 200k followers. Caster, th- that second caster is probably going to make between 30 to 40 percent more, uh, just on on virtue of their social media following. 
I, I, I'm not always a personality that maybe is suitable for public consumption. You know what I mean? Like, so the way I use Twitter is, is fairly laissez-faire and I love interacting with people, but I'm not great at like thinking about my social media strategy and how I propagate that. I have, I've had to learn that over time, but working with Blizzard, uh, there's fairly strict PR protocols. Uh, you know, you can't really wade into sort of political discussions, which is fine with me uh you, you know you, you you do stay away from a lot of those more sensitive issues obviously there are clauses in your contracts that you know you can't really be disparaging towards your employer on on twitter for whatever reason you know that's fairly standard um but that takes up a lot of my time you know i some when i'm working i try and have one piece of content per day and even if i'm just tweeting about my take on the games that's good um usually i try and you know involve some form of media in my tweet because that always gains a lot more interaction and you know try to put some content out there that is very unique to me but is still relevant and has some insight but doesn't look like i've just ripped it off a you know an article or a web page so having a real connection with your fans is important you know they you know you want the terms of engagement to be set you want them to know what you're about and you know they know that when they go to your twitter page they'll get insight they'll get legitimate thoughts from you that have you know um academic uh, grounding uh, also based on your experience you might be telling them something new or different uh so that's pretty important uh brand deals generally for me i don't deal with as much sponsorships come to the overwatch league and then uh they sort of might, i might take part in those for example they were sponsored by toyota last uh last season i was in some toyota ads which was a lot of fun that was uh, you know a little bit of something out of my comfort zone and that was just understanding, you know, what these corporations wanted from their ads and from us when they, you know, got involved was important. Uh, there are some casters that may take on these these, these sort of, um, um, you know, brand deals. If you're if you're a streamer, you probably have more of this kind of attention on you now. All of my like much of my sort of um, presence is on broadcast, and there's not a lot of time as much as I'd like to stream on the outside. But if I was streaming. More consistently, I'd say that that would be something I'd had to consider and think about sponsorships and stuff like that. And I have some of those deals, but it's important to make sure that if that's a public sponsorship, it doesn't conflict with, for me, the Overwatch League sponsorship. So if they're sponsored by Toyota and I get given a Suzuki and drive it around and make all this content, it's yeah, it's not great because I've just been mm. on a Toyota ad and I'm talking about how spacious this vehicle is. So that comes first, making sure there's not um, a problem there. Or, or, you know, if it's a brand that is maybe less savory, you know, I'm in California now, you know, if, if I was sponsored by a dispensary or something that would probably not really line up with the PR policy of, of Blizzard or the values of, of the Overwatch League and, you know, would be something I'd have to turn down. Yeah. Alternative gigs is, is something as well uh, that I had to do last year because I was exclusive for nine months of the year but had three months where I, I wasn't exclusive but I also wasn't getting paid for that period of time. So I, you know, had to hustle a little bit and, and you know, work with some people and say, hey, you're the Boston Uprising. You want to run a fan event in December? That sounds cool. Maybe you want me to come and, you know, commentate that for you and, you know, start to build relationships with some of these Overwatch League teams. Um, your contract might have exclusivity clauses in it, though, that will prevent you from doing a game that's similar to Overwatch uh, or like a big competitor. And that's something that, you know, is often worked into these contracts. So for me, like, maybe it wouldn't be great if I went to cast Fortnite. Maybe it would be fine. It really depends on the terms of my contract. Mm, yeah, and look, a lot of the time you're mentioning Twitter as well. Do you find that, that Twitter is kind of the, the paramount way to keep in touch with your fans and build an audience? Yeah, it's much easier to convert um, sort of your your gaming content on Twitter. Instagram definitely is much stronger in a lifestyle direction um, mm. that I've seen. So, I mean, you can have you can have gaming content on, on Instagram, but I find it's very it's much harder to sort of 
generate interest around that. Much of my Instagram presence is like, oh, I did this cool thing. Like I'm getting out and I'm, I'm doing things because it's obviously so image-based or like here's, here's an obnoxious picture of my bottle of wine that I'm going to drink and you can't have any kind of thing. Twitter is, mm. is, is much more, I, th- I feel like it's, it's much more easy to access that content that you sort of want because it's a, it's a better platform for interaction or more back and forth. It's not just the comments on a particular picture. You can sort of, even if I didn't take a picture of this thing I want to talk about, I can still bring it up on Twitter and, you know, there's, it's a little bit more um, sort of dialed into uh, to, to that topic, I guess, if that makes any sense. I, I haven't quite yeah. figured out. I think Instagram, once there's like a way sort of, you know, I've seen a lot of influencers use it very well, especially the live streaming aspect of Instagram. Um, I know a lot of, I, I follow a lot of fitness uh, sort of people on, on Instagram and they do very well with that. But my gaming content hasn't performed as well from what I've seen, even with all the bells and whistles and hashtags. So Twitter definitely is still the strongest in my opinion. Yeah, and I think Twitter's a fantastic way to be able to put your fans or followers like on, <clears throat> sorry, onto a podium and, you know, really engage with them in that way, right? Like if, if someone sends you a message um, of support or write some fan art about you or anything like that, it's, it's much easier to, yeah, really push them up, right? On, yeah, well, absolutely. On I mean, you things. can't really retweet stuff on instagram unless you re like repost and like kind of give them credit in the bottom corner which is a little bit you know instagram is definitely more designed for you to propagate your originals and twitter you can very easily put eyes on something that someone you know you want to support or something like that and i think sharing content um is much easier on twitter for better or for worse uh as it can often be the case but i think it's just a little bit more of a potent platform um, at the moment, especially if you really want to give your fans the feeling that they're being interacted with and they're listening and they're not just another comment under the video with all the other comments that you might get to at some point. Uh, I feel like it's much more of a, uh, a one-to-one uh, sort of feel on Twitter. And then, you know, DMs is another thing maybe as a as a public figure, you don't have yours open. I, gen- I have mine sort of semi-open so I can accept them or sort of decline them as I go and I commonly use that to interact with fans and for me, that's my most, that's my favorite part. It's just not sort of being pedestalized too much, but also being able to relate to people on a one-to-one basis. Twitter is very good for that. Yeah. So you talked about kind of seeking gigs in the off season, the three months that you weren't exclusive. Is there a rise of, of uh, management companies and management within talent like there is with the professional gamers and influencers? Uh, somewhat uh, in, in the United States. Um, especially some sort of more mainstream uh, organizations are taking an interest uh, in esports, so sort of mainstream agents. My situation's a little bit different. Um, what I can sort of talk about is uh, the, the, my visa um, allows me to work in the United States, but not, not necessarily as a freelancer. I actually work for an outsourcing company, and then I'm a contractor for Blizzard through that outsourcing company, although I deal much more with Blizzard than I would that company. It's, it's important that I have a... I am, I'm full-time employed by a company so that my visa can be sponsored. So for me, having an agent doesn't make a lot of sense because this company that employs me, I mean, they need to, there needs to be a revenue generated from that relationship, right? It's not just like, oh, yeah, sure, you can work for us and then, you know, just get your money and go. So they take an overhead. Uh, you know, I will, um, when Blizzard sort of pay me, they'll also have to pay extra to account for this overhead. And for if I want to go and do a non-Blizzard event, that's totally fine. You know, I can go ahead and hey, say, hey, I'm going to do this event uh, with you, Boston Uprising, whoever you may be. Um, I'm going to charge you this much, but you need to pay me through my outsourcing company so this is legal. Um, and then basically I set my rate 
and the outsourcing company goes shunk, takes their takes their sort of cut of that rate. So it's a percentage. So you know it could be a little bit tif- difficult for me. I can say this honestly when you know you have your rate, but then you have to charge more than what your rate would normally be to account for the overhead that will be taken as the money actually comes to you, um, or you just get paid less and accept that that overhead comes out of what you would normally get paid. So um, I, you know, long way of saying that I, I haven't dealt so much with a lot of these entities. I've had meetings with a couple of agents and I think people are still trying to find out how to, how that relationship works because generally, you know, representation agencies and stuff are, you know, assisting esports talent with getting work. But most of the time, us esports talent have already got the connections. We don't mm. really need a boost in that direction unless, which is what happens with many people, they want to start doing work outside of esports and gaming, and they want to try and do some more mainstream stuff. That is a case in which a lot of the, you know these these representation entities makes a lot of sense. But for me, like I like video games, you know, I like casting games, and that's kind of it right now. That's all I have time for. So not a huge concern for me personally. But someone like Chris Puckett, for example, who you know quite frequently you know, works on the Overwatch League as, as the desk host, but also likes to do more of those mainstream events and sort of fill out his calendar, that would maybe make sense for someone like him. Yeah, and I wanted to unpack one of the things you mentioned in there, and I have this conversation quite a lot with influencers. You know, here at Big Esports, we, we do do some ad hoc influencer management, and you know, we're ramping up a little bit more this year. But, you know, a conversation I had a couple of days ago with someone is they just said, look, I have no idea how to set my rates and who to talk to and, and um, you know, really what their value is and what they're worth. So as a talent yourself, you know, how do you know what to charge these companies? I didn't initially. I had no idea. What I had to do was was sort of talk to some of the colleagues and use the networks I had to try and divine this this value. Uh, it's my it's my belief that there's a pretty standard rate now, and I know this rate because I worked for ESL, who would hire casters, and I was sometimes involved in that process. Um, it's 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 tough because. You know, it's considered a faux, a faux party. Got to another cast and say, "How much do you get paid?" It's like, well, like, you know, mm. it's it's not so easy to to say that because then, you know, people can be undercut or, you know, you gotta understand like, you know, caster X's rate might be three X what your rate is because he has X amount of followers and has done X amount of events and does X amount of extra work when he's on site. So it, this is not easy to know, and I get a lot of questions about this. And I always answer them, not specifically in my case, but I say, look, here's, in my experience, what the standard rate is. Now, you can sort of, if you want to try and go more than that, that's up to you. Maybe going 80% of that might be the wise choice. Like, what's your experience? Where have you sort of, you know, where have you sort of been operating within the scene? Because some developers mm-hmm. come into esports and have no idea what, you know, no, no idea what they're going to pay these casters. Some casters see that and go, all right, I'm going to fleece you. And some casters come in and go, well, uh, I don't have any confidence. I'll do it for cheap. And then they don't get paid much money. And then every other caster who tries to work with this entity also gets paid stuff all because there's now been an expectation set by this this developer or this tournament organizer that that's what they're going to pay. It's probably the most nebulous and, and, and complex issue to deal with. And, you know, I work on a salary now. It's yearly salary. I was working on a day rate initially. And that's also a decision you have to make as a caster if you have a long-term engagement. Do I work on a day rate so that if they want me to do anything that maybe is extra or last minute, they will have to pay me that extra day for? Or do I want to take the salary, which is a more consistent pay, but will also require me then to kind of do anything at all under the umbrella that my contract sort of stipulates? So 
there are also things that you, you have to ask yourself. But when it comes to day rates, there's definitely a standard. Um, you need to. You, some people just need to ask around. To be honest, that that's sort of the way you need to go. I see a lot of casters. More often than not, they undervalue. So a lot of casters mm. sort of just don't ask for enough, and that causes a bunch of problems. Yeah, and I think it's really easy to have casters and also photographers as undervalued, whereas that you know they're quite important parts of a of a tournament. Yeah, because the way the work manifests is less than tangible sometimes. You know, like how many hours do I cast? Well, four hours. Okay, well, that doesn't seem like very much. Well, yeah, but also it feels like eight hours behind a desk casting because as you know yourself, it's exhausting. It requires you to be very good with improvised humor, with maintaining energy, with impacting an audience, with what you're saying and more importantly, how you say it. So, you know, it, 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 it's not easy to find an equivalent in like a, a normal field. And I know right now, like I tell you right now, like NFL commentators, the best, a million dollar a year salaries, no dramas. That's because broadcast rights are lucrative in that industry. That's a real big thing. That's where a lot of the money comes from. So they they can sort of ask for that much. Now for, for esports casters, you know, maybe at the top level, I mean, US dollars, maybe you could ask between 80 and $240,000 a year. That's maybe where you sit right now. And, you know, that upper limit would be only commanded by very few people and more likely it would come though people making that much would be freelancers who have a reasonably high day rate but are very good at getting a lot of work and filling their calendar counter-strike casters are a good example of this i think they maybe work too much sometimes but that upper you know you're definitely making the higher end of the spectrum if you're a freelancer with a lot of events if you're yeah. you know trundling along and you have like a a solid job a salary then you probably can't go and ask for that much because no one employer is going to go oh that seems like a good idea yeah exactly right and, and you know for me working with talent and stuff like you said you know if you're a freelancer and you've got enough work coming and then you're able to kind of stack some of those brand deals on top you know that's when you're starting to make the real bucks but it's definitely not you know, it's definitely not like the traditional industry where you can just grab that one job a couple million dollar contract and yeah away you go yeah. you know you're oh. set for the rest of your life and, and the thing is, when it comes to brand deals as well, it's very hard to take a brand deal from product to money. You know, like quite often, uh, a lot of brands are definitely feeling quite comfortable about, you know, supporting or, or sponsoring individuals with product. Uh, for them, it's, you know, it, it maybe it comes on an easier budget. But as soon as the conversation shifts in the direction of sort of fiscal remuneration, that's another level like that's that's a whole different kettle of fish and you know your requirements and your obligations as the person being sponsored would definitely be much you know much more intensive yeah and that's a really interesting almost psychological experiment i like to run through sometimes depending on what the industry is who the company is and and what section they're working with what section of type of talent is what I mean. So, you know, in a lot of our mentor courses, people ask me the same things. You know, how big do I need to be as a streamer to get sponsored? And for me, you know, coming from a background in Corsair and and Thermal Take before that, working on the sponsorship side of things with both teams and talent, I kind of have this upper lower limitation in my head where I say that okay, if you're getting eighty to one hundred and twenty concurrent stream concurrent viewers on your Twitch stream, for example, which is a 
a fairly good metric to go off, by the way, um, just backtracking a bit from the concurrent viewers because it shows an active audience. You know, that's when I'm going to start paying attention to and I might give you a product or two. Then when you start hitting 300 concurrent viewers, that's when some money can start getting involved or maybe 250. And, you know, at that stage, then you're expected to have a certain Twitter following, maybe a certain Instagram following. You're expected to attend a certain amount of live events and kind of go up from there. And, you know, it really goes back to the day rate, like you were saying, Mitch, in, in just understanding how the industry works. But you also need to spend some time understanding how the business behind things work and understand the people that control the money. What what are they looking for? You know, how are you going to alleviate that money out of their budget, out of out of their hip pocket into you for doing tasks for them you know you need to understand what makes them tick what market segments you need to fill and uh yeah what exactly it takes for you to get there you must be able to see it from their perspective or have had conversations enough to sort of understand what goes through you know you know these kind of marketing people's heads and what they want to see because what you think they want and what they actually want might actually be two different things it's one thing to have the viewership but what are you doing with that where is it being channeled into it what are you impressing upon this where are you connecting with this viewership and you know what else can is being put in front of them these are a lot of things that maybe people don't really think about when they think oh hey maybe i can get sponsored and you know i can and do this full time it's very important that you you treat that kind of arrangement as a partnership and not as Mm. i do this so they give me that but we are working together and we have a joint uh you know we have a joint goal here which we can definitely find a mutually beneficial relationship but you know, these cannot be sort of mutually exclusive ideals. I do this, they give me money. You have to get in their pocket and you have to get in their sidecar and understand what they're looking for as well. And if it's something you believe in, then it becomes a, a beneficial arrangement because, you know, you can still mm. be authentic while representing this kind of person and also making sure that you are providing them what they're hoping to get. Mm. And look, we, yeah, you and I have the advantage of being in the industry for so long, but honestly, anyone can do this. And what I say to esports teams and influencers and talent all the time is just go up to someone who even you have a base level relationship with and ask, what are you looking for? You know, as a, as a business owner in this space, I'm searching for extra revenue a lot of the time as you do as a startup. And sometimes I'll have a meeting with Corsair, with Razor, whoever else, and ask them that exact question. Okay. Hey, do you have any gaps in your budget? What are you looking to achieve and how can I fill those gaps? Because I distinctly remember at least twice in, in my career at, Corsair and I was only there for two years and being quite open and honest here sitting there and thinking you know man I've got $10,000 here sitting in my budget and I really need to reach these kind of people that like headsets I wish I knew exactly who I should work with and where I could spend that money because ultimately if I don't spend that money it often disappears you know a lot of these companies you don't spend the budget it doesn't come back next quarter or you might spend it on something that doesn't give you as much value so often you know, as a business owner you might be or as a talent or whatever, just go up to these companies and say, hey, are there any gaps? Can I fill them? And often, you know, you could be their saving grace and start to build a relationship from there. I mean, that's exactly what they want to hear, that one question. You know, it's it's, it's definitely, you know, it's definitely less of what can you do for me, but, uh, you know, what can I do for you in that kind of situation, especially when you would be the recipient of, uh, of, of said revenue or products. So, it's a great way to put yourself in, in their shoes and, and you know, start thinking like a marketer if you want to actually benefit from relationships. Mm, exactly. Yeah. And it, and it goes back to what I talk to teams a lot of the time about, you know, you're not, don't think of yourself purely as an esports team. Think about yourself as a marketing agency. And often there are so many more avenues that, 
you know, are made available to you. Because if you even think just about yourself and, you know, you mentioned working with the Boston Uprising, um, you know, facilitating some of their tournaments and stuff, that's, you know, out of the realms of your general nine to five, you could say, general job, but, you know, adds to that extra revenue. There's no reason that an esports team couldn't fulfill a certain thing with one of their managers. There's no reason that an esports team couldn't rep Razor to go and speak at a high school, you know, about their experience of using products and how to get into esports and such. And, you know, these are things that I've done in the past and I know they work. So, you know, if you can kind of think outside that box a little bit more as a marketer and not just so much think about how many logos can I slap on my jersey to make an extra ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars a quarter in sponsorship revenue, start thinking how you can build those relationships by doing once off things. Because, you know, for all we know, we might see Mitch the Uber contracted full time to Boston Uprising. Well just I mean, for building that relationship. Absolutely. Well, I think what people don't always realize is that the LCS, the Overwatch League, these are marketing exercises. And the money behind them is marketing budget, especially early on in like, especially early on in esports when like all those like maybe events that you see at PAX and stuff like that, mm. they didn't come from esports budgets. They came from marketing budgets. And yeah. that was just another way that they marketed. Now it's maybe a little bit different because, you know, the way the Overwatch League works and that there's, you know, uh, a large investment and, you know, it's not, they're not just trying to sell the game anymore, but they're trying to sell the league and the idea of a sustainable sort of esports, in, uh, you know, ecosystem. But for many of these smaller events, that is exactly what they are. So for casters, even if you're not a streamer trying to, you know, get some product, but you're a caster that's trying to get somewhere, you are being sponsored essentially by this company to cast their game, to, to sell their game. You are doing mm. marketing as much as anyone else. Yeah, and I guess part of that too, and I really like that you brought that up, and I think part of that too is understanding that a marketing budget can easily be diverted to another pocket. Whereas if it's a dedicated esports budget, it's more likely to be sustainable and stay there for a longer time. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, cool. So keeping the uh, discussion in the same kind of vein, um, you know, as a, as a commentator, what, what kind of financial decisions and awareness has been made available to you since starting to today? Are there things that people often overlook when they want to start their journey? I think for me, uh, especially sort of uh, making the move to the United States, one thing that I wasn't ready for was actually the costs associated with moving to the United States. From, uh, from being in Europe, which is all pretty well sorted in terms of socialized healthcare and, you know, my company provided my insurance for me and that was fine, but I don't... I don't have Blizzard health insurance and benefits because I'm not a Blizzard employee. I'm a contractor for them and I don't really have access to a large scope of benefits from my my sort of outsourcing company that I work for. And this is especially pertinent in the case of a freelancer. So when you, when I come to the United States, I had to think about, okay, well, how much will it cost to relocate me? This was one thing. How much is it going to cost to... I don't know, get health insurance, get furniture, all these things to sort of get started. And I didn't understand really how the tax system worked in the United States. So when someone tells you what your salary is, you have to go, oh, okay, well, what state am I living in? Because that makes a big difference in how much money you actually walk away with at the end of the day. California state tax is huge. It is massive. Not only is the state tax really high, but so is the cost of renting an apartment or a house here. It's just higher than other states. If I was in Texas, for example, there'd be no state tax and I'd be paying less for my housing costs. So mm. it's it's very, very hard, uh, especially as a freelancer, to sort of gauge where, you know, how good your salary actually is based on where you live, especially if you're thinking of moving to the United States or even Europe in some cases, especially if you're going to Denmark or something similar, quite expensive over there. Um, in, in Australia, maybe it's not as difficult because, you know, maybe you're 23, 24, you've lived at a home for a couple of years. You have an idea of 
the value of a dollar. But moving between countries, as we often do in esports, that that changes quite a lot. That's something that I had to think about. How much is my money worth in Europe as it's going to be worth in the United States? How much of this, how many euros do I have to save before I move to keep me going until my first paycheck, you know, in US dollars? How hard is that going to be to transfer that money? You know, all these kind of things were were very, you know, critical for me. And the thing about American health insurance, for example, is, is that it's very expensive. You know, if you don't have it, you could be in trouble because uh, pretty much everything requires it. In Australia, we have Medicare or your parents have private health insurance and you're on that until you're 25 by default. And then, you know, but I, I, I was not. Um, what I recommend to Australians that are actually moving overseas, um, you can get expatriate health insurance from an Australian company at an Australian price that is is relevant and that works overseas. Um, so this is a very specific example of a financial consideration I had to make, but I don't have American health insurance. I have Australian expat health insurance that functions here in the United States. Um, you can look up how that all works and sort of how to find that, or if you have a decent broker, they can sort that out for you. But it's, it's a huge part of the costs here. So, you know, when I first saw my salary, I was like, hot damn, you know, I'm actually going to be doing all right. And then I'm like, oh, but I live in LA. I have an LA apartment. I have health insurance to pay for a cost of groceries. You know, it, it could be very different. For me, as someone who's had to live in two, three different continents now working as a caster, that's definitely like one of the most key considerations. Yeah, and definitely understanding the dollar and what you were saying goes back into uh, figuring out your day rate and how much to pay. And that's something that I didn't take into account when I first started, you know, working for myself. I'd be like, oh, I'd just charge, you know, a hundred bucks for a day, $200 for a day, or, you know, $27.50 an hour sounds pretty good to me, which is what I used to charge for subcontracted website development, mainly for, for car workshops. And, you know, what you don't understand is there's so many more overheads that go into that. And for people who aren't experienced in the business realm, you know, you're not taught these things in school quite often. And what they don't take into account, they say, man, that electrician is so expensive at $120 an hour or that mechanic, you know, I can't believe that. But you're not taking into account that there's still superannuation if you're in Australia to pay. You know, you've got to keep the lights on. You've got to pay for power. There's rent. Maybe you have to drive to get to a location. You know, you've got a company car or your own car that you need to service and look after and then health insurance benefits and all that stuff on top. So, you know, I, some of my suggestion is that if you're a junior level person and you're trying to be an esports consultant, at least take what, you know, your hourly wage would be and times that by three. And often that gives you a good place to start and try to, you know, charge things out per hour. And that's the way that I started doing a lot of consultancy. And that's the way that we do a lot of consultancy here today at Big Esports is say, okay, we want to do a project with the client. I think that's probably going to take me about 35 hours to complete. So it's 35 hours times the hourly rate, and that's a good run rate to go from there. Sometimes you can plus a couple of hours, sometimes you can minus, but you know that's the cost of doing business, and that's the way that things work. But you know it's probably a pretty good starting point to start from. Absolutely, and remember, you're you're a freelancer, right? So you don't think in terms of standardized rates like what would I make if I was working at McDonald's for eight hours a week? This is a, a different situation. You have other things you have to pay for. Tax also functions differently. You need an ABN, first of all. If you want to work as a freelancer, get an ABN, pay the money for that because you're going to have to, and make sure you have a good way of creating invoices. Don't make an invoice in Microsoft Word. Like Really try and make sure your invoice is clear, makes perfect sense. Your payment details are clearly shown there. If you want to show PayPal, that's fine. It's a little bit, you know, new gen. I'd recommend just having your bank on there, your bank account, a separate bank account for your business expenses. 
And you need to keep track of all of these things. Um, I didn't freelance as an Australian for very long. Uh, so for me, it was, a, you know, it, it was less of an issue because I wouldn't have made enough income as an Australian freelancer for it to be an issue if I messed up on some of my tax. But you need to you need to file a tax return as that as that private that sole trader as that entity. And there are different mm. categories of those, and you need to do your homework on which is the most suitable. And lo and behold, there's plenty of those resources out there. Um, you know, if you are going to be employed uh, in another country, then you will need a visa, uh, and you will maybe have some help with that visa. Uh, usually, these companies have lawyers that can assist you with these visas, but you still need to understand the process. When I moved to the United States, my lawyers needed a lot of information about me so they could put together the petition. I had to prepare them a 60-page document of every event I've ever done that gets recorded or that exists on the internet, a screenshot of my face from each of them so they could see it's me with a lower third, and a description about what the event was, what I did, what my responsibilities were, who I reported to, and uh, all that had to be there, right? So that's if, if you want to you know, be able to work abroad. Now, if, you, if you're like uh, some Aussies have... Uh, you know, like a, a UK passport or something like that, then it's a little bit of a different situation. I don't really know how that works. You could then freelance in Europe. But, um, you know, if you're trying to get out of Australia as a freelancer, you need to be employed. You need to have a proper visa, usually an O1 visa for a lot of these kind of jobs, uh, maybe an E3 if you're working for the same company but in, a, in an international branch, that's possible. But uh, that's a whole nother kettle of fish, but you, you must do your homework because you can't just walk in past uh you know a immigration officer and just be like oh i'm just here to visit and then go and do an event because you might get away with that but uh, when i went to the embassy to go to the united states they knew what i was doing they knew before i got there that i had been on camera and if i had been on camera in america under the pretense of being on an esther before i had gone there i would have been had my visa denied straight up so you you got to be careful with that as well you know as a business consideration it's definitely something bearing in mind yeah definitely yeah i think it's uh we're looking to have uh, our account that we use here in big on pretty soon uh, i think it's pretty pertinent as, as well as you know getting yourself some legal support it's worth paying for a good lawyer and you know it goes back to to a fantastic book or a couple of books that i've read about the millionaire mindset and the millionaire next door which are fantastic looking at millionaires within america and how they got there and quite often and you know it's a surprising fact that they're just a normal employee that's saved and, and being quite frugal. But, you know, the things that these people spend a lot of money on, shoes, no. Haircuts, no. Jeans, no. It's lawyers and accountants that they're spending a lot of their money on. And ultimately, you know, if they can get you a great tax break or they can stop you from getting kicked out of the country, they're probably worth just about every single dollar that you're throwing towards them. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, so being an on-screen talent right now, you know, you said that you, you understood that World of Tanks probably wasn't the be-all and end-all for you, that you were looking for something else, looking for something a bit more. What about on-screen talent as a whole? Could we see you moving into the business side of things, professional player, or is that happy, you know, you're happy sticking with that right now? For the time being, uh, yes. Fortunately, being a commentator doesn't actually carry a lot of limitations in terms of like how old. It's quite a it's quite a fortuitous position that I'm in because you know a lot of the greatest commentators in traditional sports can do it until they're 70, if not later. So that is nice. There's not a, a physical limitation, for example, as there is you know generally considered to be for pro players. Like you know after 30, maybe you're slowing down a bit with your reactions. Hopefully, I just just keep getting better. So being a talent, it's a good spot to be in. There's always the possibility though when you're a caster that. You could just develop a relationship with the developer you work with and 
it'd be a game dev. You know, I could, who knows, maybe one day I could go and work with Blizzard on Overwatch Balance or on the esports team, you know, learning how to put that together or use my experience as a producer or like an advisor or an observer. So they're all options. Um, but I'm very passionate about being a caster, about, you know, about sort of, you know, commentating and play by play, especially. So, you know, we, we talk, I talked earlier on about your dreams sort of changing as you sort of, you know, climb the ladder and sort of realize that you've reached your dream already and where to go next. And I'm quite happy being here. But now that I'm here, you know, you, I'm definitely thinking about like, how am I continuing to develop professionally uh, in all aspects of my role as I go on? There's tons of headroom there, fortunately. So I see no reason to really sort of worry about anything uh, drastically different for the time being. Yeah, and you, and you seem, you know, to speak quite highly of the Overwatch League that you're a part of. And, it, you know, it's definitely no joke within the global esports market that's bringing in a lot of money. You know, a sponsor like Toyota is fantastic. But, you know, you're involved quite intricately in behind the scenes. What are some things that the Overwatch League does really well compared to other things you've worked in? Are there some things that other tournaments and leagues can learn from? Uh, I think one thing is definitely how they've managed to engage interest from um, sort of non-esports and uh, I've, you know, been, I've been a part of some of the projects that we've done with things like Sour Patch Kids or, I don't know, uh, Cheesed Grooves or, you know, Toyota as an example. And I think they've mm. done a very good job of sort of bringing these people on board and also sort of managing that relationship. So, you know, maybe Toyota doesn't know what Overwatch is, how the game works, but they know that the demographic is incredibly powerful. There's 18 to 35. There's a lot of eyes on the screen. So one thing Blizzard does well is not only do they attract these uh, sponsors, I think they manage the relationships quite well and they're able to put together a product that kind of looks really good and it sort of, you know, like we talked about before, uh, makes both them uh, and the, the, the sponsor very happy. So I think that's something that they've done well. I think it's actually something that, that Riot Games, for example, um, wasn't strong on getting these, these, these title sponsors for the LCS and now they're starting to do that. You'll notice that Kia is now a sponsor of the uh, European... Uh, LCS, or the LEC now. Mm. Uh, so I, I believe, personally, I could be wrong, but I think they've sort of definitely taken cues from what the Overwatch League have done and have worked harder to secure some more of that outside uh, capital investment and sort of sponsorship relationships. Um, I think outside of that, you know, the big, the real idea behind the Overwatch League was not to be a flash in the pan and do something really big and cool and then just disappear. Um, a lot of what the people behind the scenes in the Overwatch League have been doing, uh, which may not always be visible to the naked eye, is making sure that this is sustainable, not just for the sponsors or the viewers or the, the talent, but also the players, you know, making sure that this environments are being created where people can sort of, you know, be self-sustainable. These teams can be self-sustainable. Um, you know, they have a good relationship with the league itself. There's a revenue sharing model that makes sure that, you know, the more successful the league is, the more that everyone ultimately gets paid and the more that they can reinvest back into their teams and player welfare is something that is taken fairly seriously, although it's quite a, quite often a difficult um, bridge to gap when you've got a, a league, an, arbit you know, an arbitrating um, entity, and then teams who have a stake in the Overwatch League. They've bought in, but the league still sort of has oversight on how they sort of deal with their players or, you know, to some degree. So obviously, you know, teams don't want the Overwatch League to, to be up in their business all the time, but you know it's very important from Blizzard's perspective to make sure that players are being treated well and that teams are being run in a sustainable fashion. So those two concepts, I think, are what sets apart the Overwatch League, or at least in the past has done so. Um, it's one of the reasons why I'm uh, I'm so happy to be involved. Yeah, so definitely, you know, I think some of the keynotes you get from that is 
pushing for that non-endemic and professionalism really and, and setting that structure, right? And that's what we've seen a lot in the past with esports where without things being publisher-led, it's very hard. It's, it's you know, akin to the Wild West and that's what you see with CSGO right now where a non-endemic goes, well, if I invest into this market, am I really protected? And, you know, the person that owns the game and, and can make those decisions, are they part of that process? And often in that process, it's Valve and the answer is no. You know, they're very hands-off or completely hands-off as far as that goes. So, you know, there's definitely a lot of success for Valve games like Dota and CSGO with the majors and, and the international being, you know, such an astronomical prize pool. But there's also fantastic models there with uh, Overwatch and Blizzard being quite hands-on as well as, you know, with the League of Legends pro leagues all over the world and, and Riot Games being extremely hands-on too. So I guess, you know, kind of wrapping this up a little bit and going into a bit of a bonus question, you know, there's been shared on social media not too long ago. You had some some articles come out in the local news from the uh, little odd state of South Australia where you're from, kind of talking about your path into the industry to people who don't know and, and also about your father who was a professional sportsman himself. So could you give us a little bit of background about that before we dive in a bit deeper? Yeah, I mean, my, my dad uh, played uh, AFL for quite a few years. He started off playing in the SANFL, which is... Uh, so that second division league, much as the VFL is to the AFL. And, uh, you know, he eventually made his debut in the AFL playing for the uh, the Brisbane Bears before they merged with Fitzroy and became the Brisbane Lions. So he, you know, much of his career sort of happened between 1989 and 1996, I'd say, as I was growing up. But yeah, I mean, he sort of shared um, a post that I had about esports and, you know, there was, it looks like there was a journal from the Sunday Mail that sort of, you know, was friends with him on Facebook and, that journal reached out to me, found obviously quite interesting what I was doing and, you know, I, I got to sort of be in that article. But my father's always sort of been a sportsman or, you know, had the mind of a sportsman. He now still coaches local footy teams, um, you know, where he lives in Port Lincoln and the Air Peninsula on, uh, in South Australia. So um, that's definitely always been him. He, he loves his footy. Um, growing up, you know, he was never disappointed in me, to be fair, for not being a good footy player because I was not a sporty kid whatsoever. Um, and there's a lot of expectation from, I think, other people who knew my father that his sons would be great football players, but I was definitely not. My brother was better than me, but never really made it as a professional. Um, so, you know, like we, we kind of sort of, sort of relate uh, on, on that level, I suppose, is a love of competition is something that we, we both really have. He is a player and me is an, an onlooker and a mm. storyteller, you know, who would chronicle this sort of competition. Um, but, you know... Obviously, he's not really a tech-savvy kind of guy. I think he's even less tech-savvy than, you know, other 55-year-olds his age. So he would rather take the tinny out and go fishing or, you know, get outside and do whatever. So it wasn't the easiest gap to bridge, but one thing he understands is the the spirit of competition, right? So once that once I sort of was able to explain that to him and show him that it existed in esports, then it was it's, it's quite simple to... Uh, to sort of feed him to what I was doing. And, you know, and there was a lot of parallels between, uh, you know, esports and traditional sports that you can find common ground on. So for those who aren't from Australia and probably have no idea about one of those words you just said before, could you explain to the audience what a tinny is? Oh, yeah, it's a, it's a small boat. <laughs> uh, it's, a, it's a small sort of al uh, aluminium boat with an outboard motor that would like fit, I don't know, two, maybe three people in there, you know. We, uh, yeah, Australian is more... <laughs> or generally a low-quality beer in a can, right? <laughs> yes, or yeah, or a tinny could be a, a beer in a can. So you've got to be careful. Context matters when it comes to a lot of these Australianisms. 
Yeah, and I mean, do you run into that a little bit when you're commentating as an Australian? Do you have sometimes the audience doesn't know what the hell you're talking about? Uh, I do it on purpose, to be honest, because my identity as an Australian is really important to me as a person and also part of my brand. These Australianisms come out all the time. And so a big part of my shtick with my co-commentator, Matt Morello, is that I've had to explain these to him. You know, he will just have no idea what I'm talking about, even though on, on the down low, his, his, his wife is also from Adelaide. So, you know, but um, he... Yeah, so I always love bringing that stuff up. So when people tweet me, you know, what are you, what was, what does this mean, or what are you saying? It's a great chance to to interact, but also for other Aussies to feel like, hey, you know, like we've got, uh, you know, a genuine uh, Alarican up there on stage in the Overwatch League, who's sort of, in a way, I'm representing Australians as well, you know, by bringing our ideas and our idioms to the table and showing them off and sort of being proud about them, uh, as many Aussies are. So I think it's a really great way to sort of remind. The viewers back home in Australia, the country that I left to try and get my break in esports, that I'm still representing them. Yeah, and it's definitely interesting how, I mean, we're starting to get more Australian players overseas and more Australian business people, but it's crazy to me about how Australia punches so far above their weight in the on-screen talent aspect, right? If you've got people like yourself, Toby Wan and, and Gods, you know, really leading the scene and leading the charge in those areas globally. Yeah, I, I don't know what it is. I think it's just... I think it's got a lot to do with our culture. Um, I think an Australian person is pretty easy to relate to, even if you're not Australian, because we embody the concepts of, um, you know, mateship, uh, you know, of helping each other out. And also we, you know, we have the very counter, you know, as far as global culture is concerned, we possess a very countercultural trait of, you know, always make it, you know, if, if one of your boats gets too high up on his high horse, we'll pull him down a couple of pegs. And, you know, we're, we have a very strong sense of sort of being equals to one another. You know, and we disdain people that, you know, place themselves on that higher peg because of status or wealth or whatever. These things don't have real intrinsic value to us. What's important to an Australian, I believe, is the quality of your character. So I think that trait um, makes us easy to relate to. I think also the the exoticness of the accent definitely helps to break up the monotony of, you know, like British UK, uh, you know, commentators. But just that general attitude that we have and our approach to life and, you know, how relaxed we are. Um, you know, resonates with a lot of people, even if they will never set foot in Australia. So if people want to follow you um, specifically on Twitter to, you know, help your future salary prospects, where can they find your work? That's right. Get me paid more. Um, you can follow me at Uber Shouts at Twitter. Obviously, at Uber is some random rideshare company startup thing. They, they took my Twitter handle, but that's fine. So, yeah, Uber Shouts over on Twitter. Uh, if you want to follow me on Instagram, you can. I'm just going to post pictures of trees and rocks and I don't know. Uh, that's at Mitch the Uber. But yeah, those two is where I usually hang out. Obviously, um, I'm live on the Overwatch League during most of the year. So we're kicking off on the 14th of February, uh, twitch.tv forward slash Overwatch League. Um, that's where I'll be. That's kind of what I'm paid to do. So we'll see you there. Yeah, fantastic. All right. Thanks for joining us today, mate. And we'll definitely keep in touch with what you're doing. Absolute pleasure, Chris. Thanks for having me, man. All right, and thank you for listening in to the latest big esports podcast. As Uber said, you can support his salary journey by connecting with him on Twitter and his DMs are semi-open if you want to ask him any questions. My name is Chris, a.k.a. at Smithy Mayo. You can check out our website at bigesports.gg where you can find all of the other information about what we do, including all of our other podcasts. Thank you for listening and bye for now. Thanks for tuning into our podcast today. For show notes, relevant links, and upcoming projects, you can check us out online at bigesports.gg or follow us on our social medias at bigesports underscore gg. Today's podcast and all of season one and season two has been brought to you by our sponsor, PLE Computers.